Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we invigorate your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, entomologist Shasta Henry makes a butt sling for a clown beetle, performs science communication, explains giraffe beetles parasitizing wasps, and how to identify insects with Google. Shasta Henry is an invertebrate ecologist, entomologist and biogeographer doing a PhD at the University of Tasmania. We spoke by Zoom and there are some noises that sound like insects chewing that I couldn't get rid of. We continued our conversation by Shasta showing me her little friend. Got a little friend here. Go to the, you know, this is this group for the, the get people to go to the website and I'll try and get it and I feel like a beauty blogger when I'm doing this. I'm holding upwards one of my favourite specimens, which is a very, very shiny, smooth black beetle. If you get on the Google machine and look up clown beetles, this is a, it is a beetle from one of my favourite places in the whole world, White Sands National Monument in New Mexico, where a friend of mine grew up. And it's got its rear end stuck right up in the air. They're actually called clown beetles because they kind of assume this sort of handstand somersault position. And this is a defensive position because the beetles have got a chemical spray. And so they spray this noxious chemical and that um, defends them from the most things that would be interested in eating a beetle and and so they they live in these white sand deserts but they're pitch black they haven't had to evolve any kind of camouflage they haven't had to pale out their, their coloration at all they're able to live as a really conspicuous part of this landscape which for me right it's super easy to find and go and take photographs of because they're just boldly walking across the sand in this really high contrast but I found this one outside of the National Monument and Friends House and I collected it. And it, it's noxious spray stained the ethanol that I collected it into. Bright purple. It was really virulent. But when I got it back to the lab and I decided to, to you know, pin it, dry it, pin it out, dry it out, and turn it into a specimen, like all of the specimens that you see in the drawers at the museum. And so one of the sillier, funnier things I've had to do that comes to mind in my profession is to make a butter sling for a beetle and so they they dry hard when their exoskeleton all dries out and they they hold their position but when they're wet and fresh they're all floppy and they need you know each little foot needs to be held down by a little tab of paper and every knee needs propping up with a pin so that it you know everything faces in the right direction when you see those really beautifully presented insect specimens there's so much work that goes into that making sure that they're all at right angles or you know in the pose of walking or whatever the, the presenter wanted and so to, to hoist this uh, clown beetle butt 
up into the air, I had to devise a sling for a, a beetle abdomen to hold it up. And so, you know, some days people ask you, what have you been working on? And sometimes that is the answer, making a butt sling for a beetle. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Do you want to talk at all about some of your science communication work? Yeah, I love being a science communicator. It came together as all of my stories apparently have, a number of different puzzle pieces. I mean, that's the way the world works. I used to work in tourism before I started at university. And so my kind of first profession in the natural world was working as a rock climbing and a whitewater rafting guide. And I thought that that was lost time. I thought that when I came to university and I started studying and and being an academic, that that was all sunk costs. And I'd lost all of the things that I had done as a raft guide. But it was fun coming into the, the classroom and learning names for all of the natural features that I had observed out in the natural world. And so all the different pieces of grasses that I had sat on the edge of rivers, you know, pulling up. So it felt complimentary to ever look it backwards until TED Talks and then science communication started to become a you know more prevalent more common citainment people were interested in it and wanted to hear this stuff translated for them and I discovered that all of that time standing in front of people and entertaining them on trips and giving them safety briefings about how to do up the buckles on their life jackets might finally have a second wind and I had an opportunity to bring back together all the time I had spent talking to people and all the time I had spent learning about invertebrates. And it also dawned on me that living in Tasmania, a small place, and working in entomology, a small field, I very well may have to employ myself to have work. And so science communication is just kind of one of the easier access, or it was for me, I suppose, with the skill set that I had already was one of the easier access ways of basically being as kind of a consultant entomologist, but I can do it on you know practically any you know, subject I decide to Google up, you know, to be a consultant ecologist. You know, I need that PhD and I need, you know, need experience in, in specific fields where to make an engaging YouTube video or to go and talk to a classroom of primary school students. I only have to be better at entomology than a classroom of primary school students. And that just sounds like uh, temptingly low-hanging fruit (laughs) to me. It's also very nourishing. Academia is a really hard slog. And just even if it's super engaging, which I'm still really into my, my thesis subject, you spend a lot of time drilling right, right down. You spend a lot of time on your own, focusing, learning at the really pointy end of things. And that's not very interesting dinner time conversation. It doesn't change much your personal landscape. And so your partner, you know, tunes out of you do the same thing over and over again. And so to kind of put myself into a classroom of students through, for instance, the University of Tasmania has a national science week initiative called Young Tassie Scientists, where thankfully a scientist wrangler at the university gathers us up and gives us a timetable and sends us out into school classrooms. And so to, to have an audience that has really broad spectrum, really weird questions that I have to be prepared to answer and who are really excited that I'm there is just a great way of zooming out 
um, getting a bit of light and sunshine into the kind of the dusty academic space. And so I find it a really, really rewarding sort of two-way street. People apparently want to know the things that I know about insects and things that I stopped thinking about a long time ago, like the difference between a bug and a beetle. It's like, oh, off the top of my head, you go to a conference about, with entomologists, nobody's talking about that. But seven-year-olds think that it's super fascinating getting to tell their parents, no, no, that's a lady beetle, not a lady bug. <laughs> Don't you know? And so, yeah, they want to know what I have to say. And I am just thrilled to be speaking to real people who are excited that I'm there. It's funny all the things you can see. I saw a question about cicadas on Twitter this morning asking Ooh. about why they go quiet when the clouds come over. I don't know for mm. certain, but I'm always happy to have an educated guest and seeing that society has invested so thoroughly in my education, <laughs> I feel like I am qualified to make educated guesses. So knowing that insects are solar-powered, um, humans make warmth for ourselves. Um, we burn food energy and we keep ourselves at a kind of homeostasis where we're comfortable. So we shiver if we get too cold. We sweat if we get too hot, and those are systems that help us warm and cool ourselves. But insects don't do any of those things. So they're, they're very energy efficient. All of their food just goes into moving around and growing energy. But that means that they require the sun or the air temperature both uh, to, to warm them, to give them enough energy to actually get up in the morning and fly. So there is less insects active at night, less insects active during winter so as a very long preamble the cicadas might be going quiet when the sun goes in to be energy efficient it could be as simple as that it might be much more detailed they might know that if the sun goes away they might not have enough energy to fly around they're, they're calling to try and find a mate so if your mate is cold and doesn't have enough energy to fly to you then it would you know as a second step in that same logic make no sense to call to them at the time. You can probably Google it though. I spend so much time Googling questions that I think of about insects or, or, or Googling the uh, answers to other people's questions, which I periodically, you know, bleed into my inbox and I go, wow, that is really interesting. And I have no freaking idea. So I'll just, <laughs> yeah, I, have a, I have a secondary degree in, in invertebrate Googling. Oh, I'll have to try that because, I mean, the other question that I had myself is if I fly my little toy drones, the bees get attracted. So in midair, the bees will come up on the drones. And I don't know if it's the sound or or what it is, or it's in their territory, but I was just wondering if, if you'd have an educated guess. Ooh. I've obviously drawn a complete blank. I'm thinking That's about right. it. It is really interesting, and I and I and I and I salute you for having like observed that behaviour. Yeah, it could be the humming. It could be the foreign object. Bees can get a bit, you know. But, but beekeepers, interestingly, and kind of obviously, probably have you know other than like bee specialist entomologists. Beekeepers just have this massive, you know, and very long historical wealth of information. Probably before bees were being studied 
as an invertebrate. They were being tended to as a captive, as a domestic, semi-domesticated animal. And so that's interesting from that kind of almost anthropological point of view, this massive data set from kind of a non-scientific origin that is incredibly valuable. So, yeah, I am always ready to defer to apiarists when it comes to honeybees. I will have to find an apiarist to forward my question to. (laughs) You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Well, you talked a little bit earlier about the pretty insects. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way they look. I love the way they, they, they do things. And the ugly. I, I mean, there's, there's insects, are, I, I think they're just, they are beautiful. I mean, they've got colours particularly, I think, is, is really kind of undeniable. A person might not be super into like the whole six-legged creepy crawly thing, but iridescence is just wired into the monkey brain to be really attractive. You know, you might not love diamond rings, but everybody likes shiny rocks and, and rainbow sparkles. So that, I think that's just kind of in us. Beetles are my absolute favourite group of insects. Number one, insects are the average earthling. The average earthling is an insect. That's how many insects there are on the planet that we share it with. Uh, and the average insect is a beetle. So there are just so many beetles um millions and millions of them and so there is a a thousand and one different sizes and shapes and colors i also like that they can be the same thing but whilst also being so different looking you get beetles like we're familiar with staghorn beetles that have got the big mandibles out the front um and rhinoceros beetles with their great horns shiny and kind of architectural but there's you might probably never heard of a giraffe beetle from New Zealand you can go google that later so they've got a really elongated neck section so they've got this kind of normal little small beetle body and this kind of normal little small beetle head and then this enormous neck (laughs) which just makes them look so weird and I think that I think that's dead cool but like I said you know, I, I've got the unfair advantage of having the attention of people who love insects and who hate insects. Insects kind of have that same hold over me. I love the ones that are beautiful. Uh, and I also have this kind of morbid fascination with the ones that are totally awful, like um, parasitizing wasps. Have you ever opened your screen door um, on your back shed or pulled a piece of skirting board off or opened your power box door and you've disturbed disturbed a bunch of mud cells that are full of mummified spiders. Well, that's got less to do with spiders and more to do with parasitizing wasps. That's not spiders hatching inside a special spider pot. Uh, They were put there by a parasitic wasp that has gone out, found them, stung them, paralysed them with its sting and at the same time injected an egg inside of the not dead but paralysed spider and then the female wasp seals that spider up inside a mud 
cell for her baby to hatch out either on the outside or on the inside of the spider and it's there as a fresh piece of food for that spider, for that wasp grub to feed on and then hatch out as a fully fledged um, female or male parasitizing wasp to make more parasitizing wasps. And that is just creepy. That is 100% gross and weird and also very cool. Um, when I find out stuff like that, I'm in two minds because it's really gross and cool. Uh, and but also as a um, as a liaison between invertebrates and the public, I, I just have to think sometimes if I like, could you just simmer down because I am trying to do some positive press, and when you do creepy stuff like that, it's just really hard. To, you know, like I'm doing my best. If, if you guys could also just stop being so weird and gross, that'd be super helpful. <laughs> it makes insect <laughs> diplomacy very hard. Yeah, yeah, but they are just absolutely aliens. They are, you know, everything that we try to put into our horror movies and our, you know, and our sci-fi. It's, it's happening in, in microcosm down here on Earth already. So much weird stuff going on that we just don't notice. Reminds me a little bit of those zombie ants, if you know the story. Oh, you might have to tell me. I, I hear about this kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> well, I think there's a couple. So the zombie ants that I remember, there's a fungus that parasitizes their brain and sort of puppets them so that they climb up to the top of a tall stalk of grass and then it sort of blooms and the spores go out and fall onto other ants. And there's, there's yes, a, yeah, something like that. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I do know about that. I can't think of the name of the fungus at the moment. But, yes, it does that to ants. Um, and that's quite possibly a very, very close um, kind of pest pathogen and host relationship because it's actually quite hard to live inside another thing. Um, often, like those parasitizing wasps, will only attack one specific species of spider or beetle or whatever they prey on because you've got to be super fine-tuned. It's like having a key to a lock and you can't just use any key. So you've got to have all the right bits in your DNA to live inside of that spider. Otherwise, its immune system will kill you off or it won't be susceptible to your sting, those kinds of things. So, yeah, those fungi or sometimes bacteria or um, viruses or other pests yeah, we'll have a, a host that they, that they yeah, kind of use them awful mind control. I've seen it in snails as well, and the, um, the pathogen actually makes the snail pulsate its eye stalks, and it makes the eye stalks swell up until they're balloon-like, and they've got these insane scintillating colours running up and down them so that a bird will find them absolutely eye-catching and irresistible, and then the pathogen is inside the bird where it wanted to be and and these are all ecological systems these interactions of one or more things is ecology at play and I find that the balance in that dance and the pass-off and the partnership I find that so dynamic and interesting so that's kind of why I could never pick a specific insect that was more interesting than how they all fit together what they eat how that means that they are only found on know maybe one mountain top in the specific thing so that ecology really 
really interests me. But then insects are just the, the icing on the cake because it's so weird, so cool, they're so pretty. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening because without an audience, I just talk to myself. Nowhere near as rewarding. And it's a, it's a thrill to tell people about insects. But there are ways that they can tell themselves about insects. First and foremost, they're a fantastic amateur, you know, amateur professional mixed groups. Most places, countrywide, even statewide, Australia, US, Facebook groups um, where you can um, join up, log on, post photos if you've got, you know, if you've seen an insect that you're interested in knowing the name of. If anyone happens to be in Tasmania or Australia, I am Shasta Henry, aka The Bug Girl, on Facebook. If anyone wants to send me any questions, we'll go over there and have a look at other questions that I've answered in the past. And if you don't already, then I would encourage you to just, if you see at least an insect, you can type it pretty much verbatim into Google. And I would encourage you to probably put your Google search onto image search to begin with. Your eye and your brain, you're possibly already aware, but it's just the most remarkable piece of fine-tuned imaging and information processing software. I, I developed this description for my kids in my classroom. But there isn't a microscope and a supercomputer paired together yet that can do a better job of image recognition than you can. So somebody sent me an image one time of a, a big black wasp that had really shimmery blue wings and they were interested to know what it was. And so I typed black wasp, blue wings, Brisbane, Australia, into Google image search. And with the barest modicum of scrolling, I was able to find an image that was a really good match. And by clicking through the images, you start to find words that allow you to start making a more, you know, honing in your word search. You might find a genus or a family that allows you to kind of start tracking down the, the insect that you're looking for. So, yeah, I'd say, you know, hit Google with a hammer. You, you don't have to know practically anything to Google up some of your own insect answers. Awesome. Well, Shasta, thank you very much. It's a real thrill. Thank you so much for having me on the show. That was the second and final part of my interview with Shasta Henry, PhD student from the University of Tasmania, talking about her love of insects. Listen next week for Multiple Universes. Unfortunately, the Zoom recording for Shasta's interview didn't work. But you can see many other interviews on the Diffusion YouTube channel. Subscribe and like at youtube.com slash c slash diffusion radio. When the moon shall have faded from the sky. And the sun shall shine at noonday, a dull cherry red. And the ice cap shall have crept downward to the equator from either pole. When all cities shall have long been dead, and all life shall be on the very verge of extinction on the globe, then on a bit of lichen, growing on the bald rocks beside the eternal snows of Panama, shall be seated a tiny insect, preening its antennae in the glow of the worn-out sun, representing the sole survivor of animal life 
in this, our Earth, a melancholy bug. It could happen. After all, the odds favor the bug over man by at least 500,000 to one. For instance, the descendants of one pair of houseflies, during the six months of one spring and summer, would number 191 million, 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 if all of them lived and reproduced normally. That's equivalent to a layer of flies, four and a half feet deep, and 300 flies to the cubic inch, covering the entire United States. But only a minute fraction of them survive. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker, or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambaka Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is now narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Send an email to science at diffusionradio.com and let me know, would you want to buy Diffusion merchandise. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man, knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits photography, collecting. Why study science?
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.